Lars Chitka is Professor of Sensory and Behavioral Ecology at Queen Mary University of London, where he founded a new research center for psychology in 2008. He's the author of The Mind of a Bee and is the co-editor of Cognitive Ecology of Pollination. He has carried out extensive work on the behavior, cognition, and ecology of bumblebees and honeybees and their interactions with flowers. His discoveries have made a substantial impact on the understanding of animal intelligence and its neural computational underpinnings. He has published over 250 peer-reviewed articles and has been an editor of biology's foremost open-access journal, PLOS Biology, since 2004. Chitka is an elected member of the German National Academy of Sciences, a fellow of the Linnean Society and Royal Entomological Society, as well as the Royal Society of Biology. Lars Chitka, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Hello. We've been enjoying your book, The Mind of a Bee, and I believe you've selected a passage just to introduce listeners to this very fascinating work. Sure. I'll begin with the introduction, which actually starts with a quote from Morris Maeterlinck over a hundred years ago. And he thought that the endeavor of studying the minds of bees is something similar to what an alien might encounter when trying to study humans. And here's what he says. Let us suppose that an inhabitant of Venus or Mars were to contemplate us from the height of a mountain and watch the little black specks that we form in space as we come and go in the streets and squares of our towns. All he could do, like ourselves when we gaze at the hive, would be to take note of some facts that seem very surprising, and from these facts to deduce conclusions probably no less erroneous, no less uncertain than those that we choose to form concerning the bee. Whither do they tend, and what is it they do, he would ask, after years and centuries of patient watching? What is the aim of their life or its pivot? I can see nothing that governs their actions. The little things that one day they appear to collect and build up, the next they destroy and scatter. They come and they go, they meet and disperse, but one knows not what it is they seek. I think the lesson here is a beautiful and melancholy one, that the endeavor of studying other species' minds is challenging. It's a process fraught with misinterpretations. And even after centuries of scholarly work, we might still be a little off in our interpretations of what goes on in these alien minds. And in a way that will hopefully become clear in the coming hour, I think that bees are, in a sense, aliens. Their whole perceptual world and the way they process and store information is very different from the world that is familiar to us. Yes, you really bring it home and yet you make them. There has been globally, historically, as you outline, a great affection for bees and you allow us to imagine a bee like a child of its first day going out into the world. You invite us to imagine their vulnerabilities, not that it's all predestined. You really bring us into that magical world. And I guess I should ask first, what drew you to be become a behavioral ecologist and what drew you to this magical world of bees? So this is, I guess, with many researchers, finding this subject is a combination of stochastic processes and conscious decisions. So in my case, yes, I was already interested in animals and psychology as a teenager, but not insects at all, actually, to be honest. 
the way this came about was that I was an undergraduate student at the University of Göttingen, which is a small town in North Germany. And as a young man, I found the nightlife and the cultural life there a bit boring. So I had this idea to move to West Berlin, which at the time was an island in the middle of East Germany. And so I asked a professor at the University of Göttingen what he thought of that idea of changing universities. And he said, that's a terrible idea and it's going to be career suicide. It's a terrible university. All they do there is plan revolutions and so on. Then he scratched his head and said, oh, I think there's one good lab and they're working on bees. And so in my youthful optimism, I thought, well, one lab's enough. And so indeed I did move to West Berlin. And once I was actually immersed in the work that was going on in that team, I never looked back because the scientific work that was done there, as well as the things they discovered were powerfully addictive. So that's what got me into the bees in the first place. You're founder of the Chitka Lab, the Research Center for Psychology at Queen Mary University of London. You're also editor of Biology's Open Access Journal. So I founded this psychology research center about 15 years ago, and the idea was to generate a kind of biologically minded research center where there would be close interactions between researchers studying the psychology of different animals, and that included, at the time, people who were interested in primates and corvid birds, um, also people looking at the evolutionary aspects of human culture, the way that the processes by which ideas spread in social networks and either thrive or disappear is sort of similar to an evolutionary process. And the interactions with these scholars have hugely inspired my own work with bees. So the interaction with people who study the intelligence of primates, for example, or jackdaws and ravens and so on, seeing how they study animal intelligence and seeing the commonalities and differences in experimental approaches and philosophy and interpretations of findings have fed back into lots of aspects of what we did in my team. So these kinds of discussions with peers that are a bit outside your field, where there's still shared interests, but different approaches, different animals are hugely beneficial to progress in science. And it's been over 30 years. And if you look back, what we've learned about bees since you began your journey. A lot, as you say, there's been an almost Copernican revolution in general, in the animal cognition world and recognizing that humans are not the only minds on this planet, that in fact, sophisticated minds are all around us. And we now think that based on the work that I and others have done over the past decades, that these minds are among these alien but sophisticated minds in the environment that surrounds us. So what we've learned over the past few decades needs to be contrasted with what was known at the time when I first started. And it was already known that bees can learn, but most of the learning that was considered up until then was thought to be in line with what bees need to learn on a daily basis. And that involves learning about flowers because they have to distinguish between dozens of flower species in a hive's environment. And all these flower species might differ in their nectar offerings and so on. Bees have to learn to be careful shoppers in that flower supermarket. That is, they have to identify the flowers that are best and to identify them by the displays that these flowers have. So the best flowers might be 
blue and bilaterally symmetrical and have a certain smell. And bees can remember that and then focus their future foraging efforts on just these flowers. And it was also already known for a long time that bees can have very good spatial memories because they have a hive to which they must return. If they can't do that, then in social bees, they're lost. They can't survive on their own. And everything they've collected will be lost to the young that are inside that nest and that need to be provisioned with food. So there's a very strong selection pressure to learn such things. But what we've learned since then is that the intelligence of bees extends way beyond what everyone could sort of guess they might have to learn in their natural environment. We've learned that they can count, that they can recognize images of human faces, that they can learn to form simple categories, that they can even use objects in a manner equivalent to simple tool use and learn such things by observing other skilled individuals manipulating them. And I think if you would have told all these things to a scientist in 1992, they would have said, well, that's mad. You're making that up. That they would have been incredulous. And more recently, based on this work on bee intelligence, at some point, we also ask ourselves, well, if they're that smart, maybe they're also sentient. Is there a form of feeling in bees? And that, of course, is a question much harder to study because you can't ask them how they feel. You can't explore their emotional world in the same easy way as you can do with humans. So we need to use experimental paradigms borrowed from vertebrate psychology to see if bees by those same criteria might exhibit emotion-like states, but it seems they do. And again, this question of whether an insect exhibits anything that could be called a sentience is a very new one and one that people would have probably ridiculed a few decades ago. It's strange because I think that maybe artists always operate from this level of feeling that any being that's alive must have feelings. You get close to the bee, you're imagining their mind, and we think that they are so efficient that maybe we imagine that there's no individuality. You really go into their personalities and different traits. So I always feel that all animals have feelings. I don't know why that is a strange assumption to make, or it seems odd. Yeah, I mean, agree with you. On the other hand, you have to recognize that a few decades ago, we lived in a very different world where the general thinking on such topics was very different. Up until the 1990s, human babies were operated on without anesthesia because people thought, and that was the common scientific accepted thought at the time, well, they're doing all this screaming and kicking, but that's just reflexes. They don't have any feelings. There's no suffering going on there. And from today's vantage point, that seems absurd, of course. But in a similar way, I remember discussions at neuroscientific conferences in the 1990s where cat researchers performed, well, fairly invasive neurobiological recordings from cat brains boldly claimed, well, they don't have feelings. There's no suffering going on there. And at the time, I remember frowning upon this, but I also freely admit that back then, when I first did my PhD studies, I did not 
seriously consider the possibilities that insects might be capable of suffering or other emotions. And that was in line with what people thought in general at the time. And I now freely admit that might have been naive and that you might have good biological arguments actually to reason that, let's say, the capacity for fear or for pain is so universally useful to keep animals motivated to stay out of harm that it's most likely present in most animals, at least in some form. I agree with what you're saying there, but it's not what most scientists, in fact, thought a quarter of a century ago. And also bearing in mind, which you describe in your book, the artistry from the dancing or the complex feats of memory, these are artistic feats. If we can't fully appreciate them, if we can't always go into the hive and we can't observe everything in the hive, you get closer. And I feel that these are all, of course, demonstrations of individuals in a way. Maybe we can't completely understand how. The difficulty with understanding bees or other animals, of course, is quite well portrayed in this quote by Morris Maeterlinck that I started with. The problem is we can't ask them what they feel about certain activities or conditions in their environment, nor can they report back with verbal reports. So all our inroads into the bees' minds or other animals' minds are, are indirect. We often involve training the animal to solve certain tasks laboriously with rewards and so on. And then to ask how the animal subsequently solves the task after it's accomplished the training and to infer any kind of mind states indirectly from how they behave in these training situations. And that is not straightforward. And of course, whatever we observe in animals' behavior that lends itself to attributing some sort of emotional states often can also be explained by alternative explanations that do not involve any kinds of emotions. So these interpretations are challenging and there's no accepted formal proof for saying that an animal is in emotional state X or Y. We have to use a bit of common sense and draw together different lines of evidence from both overt behavioral observations, from hormonal states, from neural states that might be underpinning the emotion-like states and so on to infer that indeed it is something similar to what we experience as emotions. And they really do amazing things within their short lifespan. Maybe if you could describe to us a day in the life of a bee, maybe in their first week, their second week, their third week. Yeah, you're right. Most bees are quite short-lived, not all bees. So bee queens, for example, can live for many years up to seven years and some stingless bees, the queens can even live much longer than that. But their lives are less exciting in a sense that they are most of their lives cave animals where most of what they do is egg laying. So when we're talking about intelligence tests in bees, these are mostly done with the worker bees and they only live for a few weeks. And it might be surprising to many people that an animal this short-lived needs to learn anything at all or can learn anything at all. Because, of course, in humans, the process of acquiring crucial life skills takes much longer, many years, typically. So when a bee first emerges from the, the pupa, so bees are spend their first few days actually as little grubs inside 
a wax pot. And at this larval stage, of course, there isn't much learning going on. They have a very pampered and easy life in that they are basically immersed in the food that they require to grow. And then they pupate and become and turn from what are formerly little helpless grubs into adult bees. And once the bee emerges from the pupa, they have a number of different tasks waiting for them, which in honeybees at least have a fairly defined sequence where a bee might in her first few days simply in, involved in the many duties inside the hive, that is to clean cells, to build wax comb, to feed the larvae, and then to transition to the life as a forager. And that's what we get to see most of the time when we observe bees in the wild is that final life stage when they've left all their within hive duties in the past and are now flower foragers where they collect nectar or pollen to bring back to the colony. And in that transition from within hive duties to what a bee does outside the hive, the whole brain gets reorganized. The so-called mushroom bodies that are association centers of the bee's brain grow tremendously in size even before the bee ever ventures outside in preparation for all this memory that she will then have to use to memorize flowers and to memorize the environment around the hive and so on. So they become larger, both as preparation for working in the outside world and then as a response to storing more information. So what a bee first does when she leaves the hive is to learn and explore because they have, of course, they cannot use any innate memory of where their hive is or where the landmarks are around the hive or the useful flower patches. So all of these needs to be explored and stored in a bee's memory. So what the first few flights typically do in a bee's forager life, the maiden flight, if you wish, is exploration. They're not yet dedicating most of the activity to work, but to learning. So they will fly around the hive in ever-increasing loops to memorize the appearance of the hive or nest, if it's a natural bee, to learn the landmarks that surround it and predict the position of the hive, but also landmarks further afield. So they'll fly in ever-increasing loops further and further from the hive and try to memorize all the surroundings. And they might also start to explore for suitable feeding patches. Honeybees do not typically feed during their first few flights at all. So all they do is learning during these flights. Bumblebees might already start exploring useful food sources and land on some flowers and memorize them if they've been particularly rewarding. But the emphasis in these early flights is on learning, is on memorizing the environment and on memorizing the way back to their native colonies. And then later in life, once they've discovered suitable flower patches, they switch from this exploratory phase when they're wandering about the world to connect information, essentially, they then switch to a phase of exploitation of harvesting food from a flower patch or a meadow or a tree that they've found. And then if this food resource is really rewarding, they will typically fly back and forth multiple times to that location until that fades, which is often the case. In a flower environment, particular trees or flower patches or species might often just be available for a few days or weeks and then they fade or they're overexploited by competitors, in which case a bee then needs to re-evaluate 
the offerings that are out there, switch to exploration again and might find another suitable food source that is then worth exploiting. And it's important to keep in mind that such changes happen over all the time and over multiple timescales. So a foraging patch that's rewarding at 9 a.m. in the morning might no longer be so at 10 a.m. And so a flower visiting bee has to reevaluate its choices and might have to relearn all the time. So there's a lot that's going on in terms of how the environment changes, even over the short life of a bee, and a lot to learn and relearn because of all of these changes that might take place. Speaking of changes and those human-created changes to the environment, how does that affect the polarization vision in bees or the magnetic compass? I could just explain that process a little. So I guess many of us are now aware that bees are in trouble due to man-made changes to the environment. Large-scale industrial agriculture, of course, means that often there are no floral resources over very large areas of farmland. And bees' flexibility in locating food sources, of course, can cope with that to some extent because they're very good at locating patches. But this ability only goes so far. Of course, if there literally are no flowers left or very few, then their learning ability won't help them very much. In addition, of course, there is very heavy usage of pesticides and herbicides in industrial agriculture. And these substances, in many cases, have been uh, designed to be lethal to, or at least harmful to insects, because they're meant to keep herbivores at bay. And of course, often, even if insects don't eat the leaves, flower visiting insects still get exposed to them in the contents of floral nectar or pollen. So they carry these poisons back to their hives, their nests, albeit perhaps in lower concentrations that they're available in the leaves, but they're still present at a level that's harmful to bees, that affects their navigation, that affects the health of their young and so on. So these man-made changes have huge impacts on bees. And this is typically measured in those bees that are least affected, that is honeybees. Honeybees are, of course, not under threat. They're a domesticated animal that has a lobby and is well looked after by beekeepers. Yet even in those, there are very appreciable detrimental health effects of the landscape changes that we've imposed on bees, as well as the use of all of these chemicals. But these effects are much more likely to adversely affect the thousands of solitary bee species, the wild bee species that are also out there and which have no beekeepers to look after them, no political lobby and so on. And so these many man-made changes affect bees in multiple ways. You mentioned, for example, their navigation, their magnetic compasses and so on. So it's known that pesticides affect bees' abilities to navigate successfully back to their hives. They affect their abilities to learn. And of course, they're also toxic to the larvae that have fed the diets that contain pesticides. So navigation naturally makes use of a number of different sources of information. You mentioned polarization vision. And before perhaps we come to polarization vision, I should zoom out a little bit and explain that bees use a sun compass. So the sun, of course, is in reliable positions at different times of day. 
and therefore can be used as a compass. However, it's actually quite a bit more difficult than using a familiar magnetic compass because with a magnetic compass, the needle always points north, right? Whereas the sun, depending on what time of day it is, of course, in different positions. So if you want to find a food source that's due south of the highs using a sun compass, then that food source will be, if you're on the northern hemisphere, will be in the direction of the sun in the middle of the day. It will be 90 degrees to the right of the sun early in the morning and 90 degrees to the left of the sun in the evening. So you cannot use the sun as a compass cue unless you also have a sense of time. And bees have that too. They have an inner clock, a so-called circadian clock. They know what time it is and can use that knowledge together with the current position of the sun to navigate to a particular destination. And an additional challenge, of course, if you're using the sun for navigation is that the sun's not always visible. So you, you might have a situation where the sun is hidden behind clouds or it's currently behind a mountain, or it's even if it's still light, it might be just below the horizon. So then what do you do? If you can't see the sun, but you want to use a sun compass, how do you find your way? And this is where polarization vision comes in. So the you might recall from school lessons that light has both particle type of properties, it has light quanta, as well as wave properties. So it swings in a particular direction. In the same way as, let's say, if you attach a rope to one wall and then shake the rope up and down at the other end, it swings in one particular direction, not another one. And light has such wave properties, which we cannot see. We can't see the direction in which light swings, but bees and other insects can. And that's what's called polarization vision. They can tell the direction in which the light waves oscillate, so to speak. And it turns out that the pattern in the skylight with which light swings depends on where the sun currently is. So the whole sky dome has a pattern of polarized light that depends on where the sun is. And that means that even if you can only see patches of skylight, but not the sun, you can still, using your polarized light vision, reconstruct where the sun currently is. And that means that with polarization vision, you can navigate using a sun compass, even if you can't see the sun. And that, of course, is a remarkable ability that's inside, entirely outside what we can imagine, how one might perceive a sky dome full of different polarized light vectors. So this ability of viewing the sky dome with the patterns of polarized light in it is, of course, something that is entirely outside our imagination, but it's something that bees and other insects can use on a daily basis for successful navigation. I'm really glad that you got into talking about the eyesight of the bees because that was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me. And so I was wondering how you kind of balance that sense of like wonder of talking about something that we as humans can't possibly imagine and having that sense of wonder and also getting across like scientific facts while also making the book accessible for people that maybe don't know that much about bees. Yeah. So I think this sense of wonder is actually a key ingredient of what motivates me. So I think Calvin Frisch, a Nobel laureate who 
was awarded the prize for discovering the bee's unique communication system, the honeybee dance language, commented that studying bees is a bit like dealing with a magic well, where the more you draw from it, the more there is yet to discover. And I think that is something that both I and other present-day bee researchers experience, that there is a kind of magic to discovering more and more dimensions of a bee's sensory abilities or facets of their intelligence that often, just a few years ago, people would have thought unimaginable. And I think this this sense of wonder is, is something that you often forget in the day-to-day grind of applying for your next grant and having to deliver publications that often deal with tiny minutiae to construct the big picture. People often tend to forget what wonderful things there are out there to discover. And then they sort of get stuck in a daily grind of just delivering things that their managers expect. But I think this magic of discovering new things and new dimensions of these tiny minds is a really key ingredient that keeps me motivated to to do more of that. And I think it's, so in this sense, explaining the work to laymen is actually less of a challenge for me than perhaps for someone who works in the biochemistry of the Krebs cycle, because this magic of discovering these things happens in the realm of normal, accessible terminology, and it's easy to explain. It's easy to explain with the use of images and our our behavioral work is much of it depends on creativity. It's arts and crafts work. We don't need, at least not for all of our work, we don't need very fancy equipment or indeed expensive equipment. It's a creativity that relies on raw materials such as plywood and cardboard and some willing bees and Even the experimental techniques are often fully accessible to volunteers who come working in our labs for just a few weeks. And you actually see what the bees are doing and whether or not they're solving certain tasks. So, I mean, I do make a bit of an effort at all levels, whether I'm talking to fellow scientists or members of the public, to explain the work in ways that are intelligible and fascinating, I hope. And in a sense, Because of the nature of the work, it's actually not that hard. Talking to Lars Chitka and reading his book was really interesting to me because it offered an entirely different perspective on bees than I'm used to. I'm actually allergic to bees, so I try and avoid them most of the time. But his book and the way that he wrote about them really opened my eyes and got my imagination going in not only how they're different from us, but also why they're different from us and why they've evolved that way, and how these animals that we think of as a hive mind aren't necessarily always that. And I've actually written a poem about bees that I'm going to read. We will move together in all we do. We are the fingers of one body that we must sustain. We are all the same. We, all the same, are crowded in the dark. The mind of the hive doesn't belong to just one. And when we build our home, we will grasp hands. Construction, so geometric, the only straight lines in nature. All the same, we venture to and fro, out to danger and back, the dark busyness of home replaced with soaring colors. We are still geometrically inclined to symmetry. 
We are all the same in that we are not. You will remember better. You will protect better. You will build better. You will be faster. You will be smarter. You will go farther. I will try my best. We will all dance when we return. And now on to the rest of the interview. And you touched on this a bit before about the connection between humanity and the bees. And you also talked about kind of the change in the culture from even like the 90s of how much we think that animals have feelings. So do you think that was that an important part of writing this book was emphasizing the individuality of the bees? And do you think that you've been part of that shift in the culture? I've had to adjust my views a little bit in the course of writing the book. So this was a fascinating process. So when I first started working with bees, there was a general thinking that individuality didn't matter. There was a thinking that every variation that you observe in behavior is just noise that you needed to get rid of by averaging. And that what really mattered was the species as a whole. And to get the species picture, you had to observe behavior from lots of individuals, and then you'd take the average, and then that was all you needed to know. And I remember early on that I felt quite uncomfortable with this because it seemed obvious to me that different individual bees, and this was when I was still not an undergraduate, it seemed to me obvious that even with simple learning tasks, in this case, this was a pattern learning task, some individuals excelled at it, whereas others were almost impossible to train. And there were some individuals that made consistent mistakes of a nature that other individuals didn't make. And I had a big discussion with my supervisor and at some point he was a bit exasperated and say, well, why don't you just believe me that for decades, this is how we've done it. To get the species picture, you need to average it and that's it. And so for a few years, I didn't explore this further. And then when I moved to the United States for a postdoctoral fellowship. I had a supervisor, James Thompson, who was more supportive of this individual-based approach and was actually quite happy to explain the kinds of statistical tools to me that one would, might, would have to use to quantify such variation and, and demonstrate that it's a real phenomenon. And so for me, it was interesting that this was a battle that I had to fight early on that Gradually, I came to appreciate and document with the hard data that there is such individual variation that I think was in line with the general fashion at the time of people looking at animal personality. So in the vertebrate animal behavior world in the mid 90s, people became interested in measuring what they called personality in animals, which is actually documenting such individual variation in animals' behavior and their psychology. So we thought we were driving the revolution there, but it turned out during writing of the book that it actually, this approach was not novel, that it had actually been taken by an African-American scientist over a century ago, Charles Turner, who was a very remarkable scholar in many ways because of his ethnicity, found it possible to find a position at a major research university. So much of his published work was done from a position of being a high school teacher. 
which is extraordinary if you think about it. So he didn't have a well-resourced lab, um, nor access to a big library, and yet he published over 70 articles, many in highly regarded journals and very visionary insights about animals' psychology and behavior. And one of the threads that ran consistently through his work from his very first study, which was, I think, published when he was 25 years old, was on the individuality of behavior and of, in fact, intelligence. So his very first paper was on spider behavior, and he described individual variation in spiders' orb weaving abilities, where some spiders were especially good with building webs in artificial conditions that were especially awkward, whereas other spiders were more likely to fail, fail at uh, such tasks. And all through his work on spiders and ants and bees and wasps and so on, this thread of individual differences is a constant theme. It's a pity that his work was, I guess, disregarded and then later forgotten at the time because it's so visionary and so ahead of its time that people would have done well to learn from Charles Turner's insights, but they've unfortunately been buried. And I only found out about much of his work during the course of the book and then had to rewrite a few sections, one of them being where I prided myself and being a pioneer in the study of individual bee behavior when it turned out that this had been done a century before me, actually. Yes, it's really wonderful how you have resurrected him and our collective appreciation for his work. Speaking of historical scientists, it's interesting the studies that you bring to light also bear the architectural adaptations of bees in unusual remodeling their hive and unusual circumstances that show a great deal of on-site, in-the-moment adaptation, which is very artful. Yeah, so bees are, again, relatively unique in the animal kingdom in terms of the things that they build. So if you think about it, in our closest relatives, the mammals, of course, there aren't really any examples of animals building complex structures. Charles Darwin thought that the beaver was one remarkable example of collective building of homing structures and so on, and that is correct. But there aren't actually that many examples. And bees build very elaborate nesting structures. And one of the wonders among the many species of bees, there is the hexagonal structure of the honeycomb, which in its mathematical perfection and regularity is a magnificent structure. Darwin referred to it as one of the most wonderful animal instincts, this construction of this regular hexagonal structure. And so it's, it turns out that it's mathematically optimal in terms of minimizing material usage while delivering maximum storage space for larvae as well as honey, and also stability. It's also double-sided, so the um, cones from the bottoms of these hexagonal cells are interfaced optimally, so you have storage space on both sides of the vertical cone, and so on. And one thing that strikes is its high regularity, and that, I guess, tends to lend itself to an interpretation. So the highly regular structure of honeycomb lends itself to an interpretation that there must be a kind of robotic process at work, that it's a bit like a machine laying bricks by very simple rules, that there's just a repetitive process that could be easily built into a machine. And 
the interesting thing there is that people have thought the same for decades and indeed centuries. And indeed, a very humbling observation was that people have thought about similar problems 200 years ago. There was a Swiss scholar by the name of François Hubert who was interested in exploring the inner workings of a beehive and therefore inserted glass screens or walls into his hive boxes to see what the bees got up to inside. And so the first thing that he observed when introducing a glass screen to the hive was that the bees didn't like very much to attach their honeycomb constructions to glass. And normally the, the honeycomb is grown from the top to the bottom. So bees start to attach their wax to the ceiling and then work their way gradually along the direction of gravity. That's how honeycomb is usually built starting at the top, going down to the bottom. And so what Hubert and his team found when introducing a glass ceiling to the hive is that because the bees now encountered the slippery surface at the top, they started instead to build the whole construction as a kind of tower from the bottom up. So they inverted the whole relation of comb construction to gravity by starting at the bottom and gradually building up. Now, that's still a repetitive process. You might still say, well, that's fairly robotic. But once the Uber's team had found that, they then introduced a number of more difficult challenges, which I think are really remarkable. The next thing they did was they said, okay, well, what if we now have a glass ceiling and a glass floor? What do the bees do then? And in that case, they started building on one of the sidewalls build the construction gradually, laterally through the cavity until they've reached the opposite wall. So far, so good. But they then said 200 years ago, all right, well, now what happens if they've started building the comb, and it's always a two-dimensional construction normally, what if we now, after they've already started building it laterally through the cavity of the hive, what if we now make the target wall suboptimal by replacing that with a glass screen? And in that case, before the bees had actually reached the suboptimal wall, they turned the whole construction 90 degrees and attached the ongoing comb construction to the nearest wood wall. So there was now a comb construction that had never happened in evolutionary history before. It was no longer two-dimensional. It turned 90 degrees and this kink in the construction was introduced days before the bees would have reached this opposite wall, before they would have reached the slippery surface. And so it seemed to Hubert and his team that what he observed, there was a kind of planning ability, something that was not robotic. So the, a robotic bee would have just continued until they'd reached the glass wall. Then they might have said, all right, well, this is no good. Let's perhaps attach some additional support constructions there to make sure the construction doesn't slip. But Hubert's bees took this corrective action before reaching the slippery wall. And so he thought that there was a kind of foresight being displayed of the bees taking a corrective action before reaching a suboptimal outcome. And this, of course, is interesting in that it contrasts with our perception that the regularity of the comb construction indicates just robotic processes. So there might be a bit of both. There might be some repetitiveness in the same way as you could instruct a robot to build a brick wall by just putting bricks in a certain position, but also a kind of planning ability that deals with unusual challenges. Now, these historic experiments await replication with modern sample sizes and so on. 
but at least the thinking process behind the experiments is a very interesting one, very fascinating that someone thought of all these experiments two centuries ago. Indeed. And I wonder if today's builders would have that kind of in-the-moment foresight, the master architect, the blueprint, to make those kind of very elegant adaptations. Just imagine, I don't believe even very sophisticated builders would work en masse to make these kind of last-minute turns. Indeed. So I think in human construction also, there is a mix of repetitive procedures and some planning ability, of course. In humans, unlike social insects, there are, of course, masterminds. There are architects that draw out a plan according to things they have imagined and, and others following instructions that derive from these plans. So it's quite clear that the relative contributions of repetitive processes and planning are more biased in favor of planning ability in humans. But the perception that there is only a robotic process in social insect constructions might also be inaccurate. There might at least be some forms of planning abilities there as well. So throughout the book, you obviously use a lot of other scientists' research that they have done. But what I found interesting was that you didn't just use quotes or facts from their work. You also added some like historical context of what they were doing their research in. So I was wondering if you could talk about why you made that decision. Or even you talked about von Fisch a lot. So if you want to talk about the historical context that he was doing research in. So we all stand on the shoulders of giants. It's important to recognize where your own thinking comes from, where your ideas originate, your experimental procedures, and so on. Very few of us are the kind of genius that invent things entirely out of nothing. Charles Turner was a bit like that because he worked largely in isolation and his ideas were in sharp contrast to prevailing ideas at the time. But I think the majority of us, their thinking grows from within a social context and specifically from the environment that we learn in, that is our PhD supervisors and the schools that they have immersed themselves in. So in my case, specifically, my supervisor was a scientific grandchild of Calvin Frisch. So my supervisor was supervised by Martin Lindauer, who was in turn supervised by Calvin Frisch, who was an Austrian scholar, although he did much of his work in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century and then up until the 70s when he received the Nobel Prize. And he is a remarkable scholar. He didn't receive the Nobel Prize undeserved. And of course, he came up against many obstacles at the time. He was part Jewish and worked through the, the Nazi years in Germany. And you can imagine that that was not, not easy. So he was, well, by the Nazis' quantifications, quarter Jewish, which by their rules meant that he wasn't um, immediately deported, but he was clearly under threat. And so both from colleagues and higher up in politics, there were many attempts to remove him from his post. And so he managed with some support from higher up, um, retain his post through the war years. In part, he was assisted by luck in the sense that there was a disease at the time affecting the German hivebees, which in turn, of course, affected their ability to pollinate crops. And that was 
seen as a threat to the Nazi war effort. And so the Nazis therefore thought, okay, let's, uh, let's keep this guy in post until we've won the war. So they still thought that this was a possibility in 1943. So the Nazis perception that bee research was relevant indirectly for their war efforts. And I don't think that Carl von Frisch's work, as far as the epidemic was concerned, actually got very far, but it meant that he could continue his work in this case, specifically on the bee's dance language, where just around the end of the Second World War in 1945, he made the key discoveries that would ultimately earn him the Nobel Prize. It's an inspiration. I mean, we often moan about the little difficulties that we encounter in our daily lives as scientists in terms of fair to publish and to win grants and so on. But if you look to some of the difficulties that our forebears have encountered and nonetheless achieved extraordinary things, you sort of go, ah, well, okay, in that case, maybe I, I should stop moaning and uh, just keep on with it and achieve what's uh, possible despite me not facing such challenges. But yeah, I think he was a remarkable man, not just with regards to the insights that he himself garnered during his lifetime, but also in terms of the challenges that he faced and nonetheless managed to carry on somehow. And of course, he trained a, a generation of further scientists that on their own terms established very important findings to the field. Yeah, a remarkable contribution to the field. And we discussed the many ways we see and communicate. We didn't really go into antenna and how they function. I've already mentioned that the sensory world of bees is profoundly different in many regards. And one aspect of that is their antenna or feelers, as they're often called. We're familiar with seeing them in all insects, but it's actually quite a remarkable structure. So they're roughly the length of a bee leg, depending on which species of bee you are. In some cases, they're much longer. And they are sensors of all kinds of the environment. They're a bee's nose, so they can smell with them chemicals that originate from distant sources, but they can also taste with them. So they can measure the sugar content, for example, by dipping their antenna into flower nectar. Now, an insect sense of taste is also weird because they can often taste with their feet and with other body parts, but the antenna are definitely a major part of tasting as well as smelling. They're, of course, also used as touch sensors. So they're highly sensitive to structures that a bee can feel its way around. So for example, flowers in their surface layer of cells, the so-called epidermis, have very different structures depending on which species are touching. And bees can tell the surface structure of flowers, even when no visual cue is available, just by feeling their way around these structures. But this mechanosensory ability in turn also makes them sense other parameters of their environment, for example, static electricity. Bees can also sense electric fields using their antenna. And that, it turns out, is very important in insect-flower interactions also. For example, it turns out that every time a bee visits a flower, there's a little electric charge exchange between the landing bee and the flower, so using their antenna. If they're flying close to the flower, and it turns out that it's recently been visited by the specific electric charges that the bee's antenna will be exposed to, she can say, okay, I'll fly on this one, it's already been empty. So it's a multi-sensory device, highly sensitive to very thin concentrations of chemicals in the air, but also to mechanosensory stimuli, such as 
the flower surface structure or electrostatic cues. The chemical cues, of course, are also relevant in the darkness of the hive. So there are lots of different substances that float about in a hive, both from things that the bees might bring in, flower scents, where if a dancing bee, for example, brings back a certain flower scent, then that's a cue to the flower's identity, but also pheromones, chemical substances produced by the bees themselves that are highly important for the functioning of the hive. And in addition, there might be intruders in a bee colony, either members of other bee colonies that are trying to steal some nectar or species such as wasps, which in the darkness of the hive, again, you can only tell by chemical cues. And so this bee nose that is the bee antenna is also very useful in finding out the subtleties of identifying what's going on in the hive, whether they're intruders and so on. It also makes us really reflect a lot about our own ability or our loss of our ability. We know that we can sort of pick up pheromones, but in our synthetic reality, we depend very much on our reason. We are really losing touch with these other senses, these other languages and intelligences. I don't know how you reflect on that as you study bees. Yeah. So I think this observation that there are sensory cues available that are either completely different to what's available to us, including, let's say, a magnetic compass sense that's accessible to some animals, but not us. And also within the sensory modalities that we have available, you find often that different animals, including bees, use them completely differently or have a completely different spectrum. So bees can see ultraviolet light, we cannot, and so on. Bats can hear ultrasound, but we cannot. And we think because the way we sense our world is comprehensive and it feels comprehensive to us, and we feel that there is validity to how we see it. We think that is a kind of complete picture of the environment and the veridical representation of what is out there. That is not the case. So other animals see the same world completely different to how we do. And so there are limitations. We only see certain parts of the environment or perceive certain parts of the environment. That's those parts that evolution has given us the kinds of sensors for that have been beneficial in our evolutionary past, but it's by no means a veridical or complete reflection of the environment. So it's very humbling, in fact, to see just uh, how many different sensory systems there are out there and how they're often in many ways superior to our own. In a sense, I think it comes with an obligation to preserve the environments that have shaped these other perceptual worlds that are out there also. And it also makes us appreciate so many things that we learned from your book, but not only are bees and pollinators sustaining life on this planet, sustaining our food source, but then also there have been studies to suggest that the evolution of our own brains was fueled by honey. Yeah, that's a speculative but fantastic theory. So it's apparent that humans in our evolutionary history have had lots and lots of interactions with bees because, of course, before they were available in the corner store, honey was the sweetest substance that was available out there in nature. And not only have humans capitalized on that for many millennia, as is documented with prehistoric cave drawings, often 10,000 years old, where people have depicted the raids on 
wild honeybee colonies. People in those days didn't necessarily yet have beekeeping skills, but they had the ability to steal honey from the bees and gorge themselves on it. But it's not just humans. It turns out that even our closest relatives in the great apes apparently all exploit honey from bee colonies, often using tools such as sticks. And because of these observations that not just primordial humans, but also our primate relatives have feasted on the honey generated by bees, some people have come up with the attractive, albeit speculative, idea that this in at primate ancestors' perhaps widespread ability to harvest honey might have provided a key energetic resource for large and energy expensive brains. So that that the ability of harvesting honey and being clever at it in turn fueled or enabled us to grow larger brains over evolutionary time, which further fueled our intelligence and ultimately gave rise to modern humans. Very hard to prove this theory, but it's by all means an imaginative interpretation of human evolutionary history. Oh, I think it's a beautiful one. And I wouldn't mind to attribute some of our intelligence to their evident intelligence that you have outlined so beautifully and with such compassion and clear language in the mind of a bee. In closing, as you think about mentors and teachers who are important to you, if you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I mean, in terms of research, I think the one message that I try to pass on to my students is that their work should be motivated by curiosity and things that they are fascinated by rather than things that are currently perceived as fashionable. And I realized that in a sense, that's perhaps not always the most useful advice. I guess you might thrive most in a straightforward career where you're aligned with current funding priorities and fashions. But if you really want to discover things and feel that excitement of finding new things that no one's found out before, the only way I think to do that is to go into a field that inspires you and to be, rather than being motivated by funding success and so on, is to be motivated by the kinds of things that you study and that you might find out. More broadly, of course, in the outside research world, yes, the world of bees is under threat. And that is not because bees are singled out, but because bees live in the environment that we all share. And they're kind of cannery in the coal mine for what's going on more largely in destroying our environment. And in a sense, bees are, I think, a useful sort of mascot, an icon to highlight these troubles. But they are only a signpost of other things that are, that are also under threat. And as you've pointed out, we need the bees for our own food because they pollinate our crops and they pollinate the flowers that we enjoy and so on. But I think that their utility for us is not the only reason to support them and their environment. I think the growing appreciation that the world that surrounds us is full of sophisticated and unique minds places on us a kind of onus and obligation to preserve the diversity of these minds that are out there 
and make sure that they continue to thrive. And you really opened our minds to think beyond our particular discipline, beyond our particular species to appreciate the mind of bees. So thank you, Laj Chitka, for helping us understand the minds of bees and sharing your insights into the complexity of the way they see, learn, feel, and live. It helps us appreciate their journey and the fundamental role bees play in sustaining life on this planet. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Well, thank you guys for listening. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Ellen F. Stothew with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Ellen F. Stothew. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved at One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.